Welcome to Citizens Midweek. It's a podcast for our church family in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we take a deeper look at each week's sermon. I'm your host, Jacob Kirby, joined this week by pastor and friend Tim Olson. Here we go. This week, we were in week eight of our Fruit of the Spirit in a Time of the Flesh sermon series that we've been working through this fall. This week in particular, we looked at the fruit of faithfulness, taking a look at Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. It's the the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Uh, And specifically, we mentioned that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in three ways. He tried to tempt him with provision. He tried to tempt him with power, and he tried to tempt him with protection, um, and ultimately how Jesus was faithful to what God had said said to him, despite being tempted by Satan, Jesus remained faithful to what God had called him to do. Um, So specifically, the sermon was called Faithfulness in a Time of Compromise. So kind of looking at that picture of Jesus being tended in the wilderness and and kind of juxtaposing that to how in the world that we live in, it kind of seems like there's there's moral compromise all over the place that... um, you know, specifically, we talked about two different types of compromise. We talked about biblical compromise, or maybe you might call it theological compromise, where there's kind of a lot of pressure in our society right now to kind of abandon some age-old theological truths, some age-old biblical, um, you know, things that have been clear biblically for a long time that because of the way culture is moving, we're being really encouraged or kind of uh, forced to, to consider abandoning those things. And the second category of compromise is moral or relational compromise. So, um, the idea that, you know, we might know what the Bible says, but we abandon not just, we don't just shift what we think the Bible says to match society, but we just abandon it all to all together. We just say the Bible's wrong and culture's right. Um, and how, you know, society is really kind of tempting us or, or encouraging us to, to leave the path of faithfulness to historic biblical Christianity, um, in the name of a lot of things, you know, social expediency and all that stuff. And, you know, that in mind, like the temptation story of Jesus in mind, the ways that the world wants us to abandon faithfulness, um, we talked about how there are kind of two ways that God intends to help us remain faithful. One is the power of his spirit in us, um, and one is the power of his word. So if we if we know God's word, if we're confident in God's word, and we're filled with the spirit that God intends to use those as tools to help us stay faithful along the way. So um, I thought it was a really great sermon. You're welcome. <laughs> that was a really great sermon. Uh, I think in particular, uh, I don't know if it's what stood out to me, but just something I was thinking about a lot was that, especially in that kind of um, biblical theological compromise section, I just see like how, uh, maybe how easy it is or how much I've seen that over my, over the last like 10 years of my life, like how many people in my life when met with, you know, dissonance between a cultural ethic and a biblical ethic have chosen the cultural one because because a lot of people affirm it, you know, like um, you gave that example from, from Tim Keller of how he kind of talks about whenever he's meeting with a couple or maybe just an individual that's really um, wrestling with their faith and feel like they want to walk away from the church and all that stuff. Um, he kind of says maybe a little tongue in cheek, but his first question to them is, Oh, so you're thinking about walking away from Jesus. Tell me first, who are you sleeping with? Um, and kind of that as an example of like, uh, when we make moral compromises along the way and we make biblical compromises along the way, it's actually, you know, the house of cards will start to fall pretty quickly um, when it comes to following Jesus. And I've just seen that time and time again. And people, you know, in my life and even the temptation of my life to affirm what culture says in a way that would really, you know, uh, equal walking away from Jesus and how much the world would prefer us to do that sometimes. So I just thought it was a timely word, I guess, 
um, to, to be faithful, to be consistent, to be in line with Scripture and all that stuff. Um, yeah, what about you, Tim? What kind of stood out to you while you were preparing for this week's sermon? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, really, the the, uh, the pastoral encouragement that I tried to give near the end about just the spirit of weariness, um, you know, uh, I brought up talking to uh, Pastor Aunt Frederick, who is a, is a friend of our church's uh, and mine, uh, pastor in Columbia, and he talked about uh, a conversation we had this past week where he was just mentioning, like, just the kind of feeling like you're walking through the mud uh, coming out of the last year and a half and and so uh just like yeah it's it's tough right now to want to follow jesus it's tough right now to want to push into these small acts of faithfulness it's tough right now to want to um yeah take these steps forward and and to do the little things of faithfulness to show up to group to show up to our friends to uh get in god's word to pray to to just do all the the basic stuff of being a christian uh and i think I'm thinking a lot about that in in the relationship to Galatians six, right? So Paul says, uh, "Keep in step with the Spirit." In Galatians five, like walk by the Spirit. Here's the fruit that will result. You'll be able to put to death the, the works of the flesh. You'll be more alive to the fruit of the Spirit. And then he gets into chapter six and he talks about like, don't be deceived. Like don't don't grow weary in doing good because what you sow you will reap. And so just the reality of like, yeah, who who we are becoming, uh, what we do today dictates who we are becoming. And so these small decisions of faithlessness rather than faithfulness matters in the long run. And so even though I'm, I'm weary, even though it's tough, even though, I mean, it feels like sometimes I'm walking through mud, that it matters and that there's something being sown for the long haul that I have to, I have to be, be able to say, yeah, this, this matters. It's not just a, a small decision of like, yeah, well, no big deal. I didn't show up to group tonight. But these small acts of decisions of faithlessness matter into who I am becoming. One of the famous quotes, I couldn't even attribute to someone that, that I know that people, we talked about in the sermon and I've heard people use before, is this idea um, of, you know, character is not made in the big moments. It's revealed in the moment, big moments. It's made in the small moments. Um you know, Walker wants me to attribute it to a high school football coach, which is fine. Uh, yeah, but his high school football <laughs> that's coach. That's what he said. Sure. He's like, my high school football coach used to say and that. Somehow we all, uh, yeah, we've all heard that, it. That's who it was. It was Walker's high school football coach. <laughs> uh, good job, Birmingham. Um, but just the idea of like, yeah, we want to believe that character is made in the crisis, but it's revealed in the crisis. It's made in the times of, of the small acts of sacrifice and faith. Yeah, I think I'm even thinking just now like how we use this phrase a lot in the positive but it really applies to the negative too that ordinary is not insignificant um we say to the positive a lot of like hey just you know in a sunday context just because what you're doing seems really normal seems really rote seems really mechanical like um playing songs on the stage that we've played a bunch of times before or pressing buttons in the booth just because that feels ordinary doesn't mean it's insignificant and i think i would even say that in this context in the opposite which is like just because um I don't know, missing group time because you just didn't feel well that day feels really, uh, feels really normal, feels really not worth remembering, <laughs> not worth dwelling on. Uh, ordin- ordinary is not insignificant. And I think, you know, we're always taking steps in one direction or another. We're taking steps towards faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And um, every step that feels ordinarily like, I don't know, that feels ordinary might be a step towards unfaithfulness that over time we'd turn back and say, oh, I'm really far from the mark here. Um, but I didn't see it because it just felt like one thing at a time, one little, one little step. What are we going to dive deep on this week, Tim? Yeah, I think 
Um, going back to kind of the context of where Luke 4 takes place in the life of Jesus. So uh, kind of to get you up to speed, right? So you have uh, Luke 1, you have this, you know, kind of the, the introduction to Jesus. He, um, you know, John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist is foretelling about Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is born. He goes to visit Zechariah. I guess he gets brought. He's a baby. He gets brought by Joseph and Mary to visit <laughs> uh, Zacharias and Mary. And uh, there's all of this, you know, Mary's Magnificat, all this beauty of like the Advent story, the arrival of Christ in Luke 1 and 2. And then in Luke 3, you really have the beginnings of um, kind of Jesus' adult life. Uh, so, you know, the beginning of, of John, or sorry, of Luke chapter three, you have John the Baptist, uh, Jesus's cousin, preparing the way of the Lord, doing his role as a prophet, going into the wilderness. All these people are visiting him and he's declaring, um, you know, Jesus is coming, prepare for the kingdom of heaven, like all of this stuff. And then you kind of end Luke chapter three. Uh, kind of right, I guess, verses 21 through 23, with Jesus going to the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. And you have this beautiful scene before Jesus has done any public ministry, no healings, no feedings, no preaching. Before he's done any ministry, he goes to the wilderness. John the Baptist baptizes him. He comes out of the water. And you have this beautiful Trinitarian picture where uh, God the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And God the Father declares over God the Son, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And there's this establishment publicly that, that did not begin to be true right there. It was always true. Um, you know, God the Son takes on flesh and ceases to be God um, in the role of the Trinity. But publicly, you have this declaration before Jesus does anything of his identity. You are the Son of God. You are uh, beloved by God. God is well pleased with you. Um and then you get into the end of Luke chapter three, which is this genealogy about like, yeah, this Jesus was who we've been waiting on. Uh, the whole book of Luke is Luke trying to um, basically prove to this guy named Theophilus that Jesus is who he says he is. And then you have this beautiful genealogy that's like, Jesus is the one. It's proven here at the baptism with God the Father's declaration. It's proven in his genealogy and the fulfillment of these prophecies. And then you get into Luke chapter four and immediately Jesus goes from baptism to desert. And uh, I think it's just this this powerful, he's led by the spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, and then he's led out of the wilderness by the power of the spirit. And so you have this juxtaposition where um, Jesus gets declared his sonship, he gets declared his identity in Christ, in God, God says, you are my beloved son. He goes into the wilderness immediately, led by the spirit, fasting for 40 days, and the first interaction that we are told that he has with the devil, the very first thing the devil says mm -hmm. is, if you are the son of yeah. God, hmm. right? So his identity is declared and then immediately it's put into question. An attack on the identity right away. Exactly. And you have this kind of beautiful, um, within the context of the story, point back all the way to Genesis 1 through 3, right? Where Adam and Eve are put in the garden, right? They enjoy fellowship with God and with one another. God tells them, do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you have the devil show up. And what's the very first words of the devil? Did God really Did say? God really say? Yeah. It's the same question, right? Mm. Same question in Luke chapter four. Did God really say? Are you actually his son? Are you really? If you were, you would do this. And uh, it's this idea, and we're going to talk about this actually in a few weeks, that you know the devil puts question marks where God puts periods, right? So God says, do not eat from the tree. The devil shows up and is like, did God really say you die? Did he really say you shouldn't eat of it? And Adam fails, right? Adam is absent. He's like, oh, maybe you're right. And then they eat from the tree. Sin enters the world and the curse. And so here's Jesus being the true and better Adam saying, no, I, I am the son of God. And here's what 
my father's word says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not live by bread alone. Uh, and so just over and over, you have Jesus fulfilling and being the true and better Adam, what Adam could not do, which is resist temptation, say no to the devil, say no to this pull towards sin, and live into his true identity as a son of God. And so not to kind of bring this all together, what that means for us that we didn't get to really hit on in the sermon is um, this is at the core of so much of our temptation to compromise is a forgetfulness of our identity, a forgetfulness as followers of Jesus, for those who have trusted in Christ, of what God declares over us, that we are sons or daughters of God, that he has declared over us um, sonship, right? That we have rights and we are heirs to a throne, that we are caught up into the family of God. And so what happens in the compromise is we forget that. And so we go, okay, what do I need to do to establish and secure what God has already declared over me? What do I need to do to establish my position in life? What do I need to do to establish my place? What do I need to do to establish my provision, my power, my protection, all these things we talked about in the sermon. And yet there's this beautiful picture of Jesus is rooted in what God the Father has declared over him, his identity, so he doesn't have to give in to these temptations. And so the invitation is for us is to go, okay, do we believe our identity? Are we rooted in it such that by the word and the spirit, we're able to say no to temptation and the pull of compromise from our enemy? Yeah, I think even just uh, so the like the temptation that we might feel is like, mm, I don't know. I guess what I'm thinking is like the question that's being asked of us is, is what God has given us enough that we can actually be denied it from other places and still be okay. Because both are offering some sort of protection, provision, you know, all those things. Some version of it. Obviously, God's is much more fulfilling. But it's not that what Satan was offering would not at least temporarily fulfill what Jesus was longing for. I mean, it would bread would satiate hunger for a moment, you know. Um, but it's the question of, is what God has offered, are we going to be so confident and secure and steadied and founded in that, that we can be outright, we can have the the other offering outright rejected you know we can be denied it elsewhere and still be okay and i think that's what i see a lot in the more compromised stuff that we talked about at the beginning is like are we going to be okay if we know that our identity's in jesus and people hate us for that <laughs> like are we're social pariahs a little bit for some of the you know historical christian beliefs that we hold or maybe if it's not outright you know aggressiveness it's definitely some some social confusion of like what <laughs> why is that important to you um, are we willing to actually be rejected by society, by culture, whatever, while we are firmly grounded in who Jesus is? And not only in the ends that are promised right. by God, but also the means right. by which he declares those ends, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the, the second temptation is so fascinating. Uh, and this got cut from the sermon too, but their theologians are so all over the map whether or not Satan can actually give Jesus right. what he offers him, right? So yeah. he like takes him up to the top. He's like, I'll give you the entire world I was to worship that. you. And, and theologians, are, they're very they're very split. And I thought I was like, oh, cut and dry, right. obviously. You know, but people are like, maybe, who knows? You know? Well, because Satan says, as they've been given to me. Yeah. It's like, says who? That, right? That, so it's that like, was my he's thought the kingdom of darkness. It. He's the kingdom yeah. of the world. You know what I mean? Like all that stuff. But the compelling thing in that temptation is that uh, that is already on offer to Jesus through the path that God has laid out before him of sacrifice and death. And so it's this offer, not not actually, not actually um, it, the end is still the same, right? Rule and reign overall, but the means are different. And I think about this like throughout the Old Testament. Like this is kind of the theme throughout the Old Testament, right? Uh, God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, right? 
Are you going to trust the means though? Are you going to go and have children with your servant? Are you going to trust that I'm going to deliver this through your barren wife? I mean, just time I'm reading the story right now. We're getting ready to preach on Ruth, right? And Ruth and Naomi have this interesting back and forth where God shows up and provides this kinsman redeemer of Boaz. And then Naomi is so quick to be like, all right, Ruth, do this, 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 and this, and this, this is how we're going to secure our redemption. And so they believe in the end, God's leading them towards, but do they trust the means? And this, this is, this is throughout, uh, this is the, the pressing on David, right? David's in the, in the, um, the cave. And Saul, he has the opportunity to kill Saul and take his kingship that is rightfully declared over him by God. But does he not only trust God with the end, does he trust him with the means? And you can give this story in, in so many different ways. And I think part of that poll, like you were talking about with moral compromise stuff, is that we, uh, I mean, this goes all the way back to stuff we've talked about before with like kingdom without the king, right? Where it's like, we want the end and we have good God-given promises of what the end is, but do we trust him with the means? And then the means often lead to the truer end and not just our tainted view of like us getting what we want. Uh, so the, so even think about power, right? Think about power. Uh, the end of power is us ruling and reigning forever with King Jesus as King Jesus establishes his throne. And yet we want the end without him. We want the means of like, well, we're going to do it through politics. We're going to do it through this. We're going to do it through that, whatever the means may be. And so even back to your point about like in terms of like the folding it and stuff, uh, I'm back in school, uh, furthering my education, trying to learn. And I'm, I'm in a class right now on uh, historical theology and just reading about these doctrines of the faith and how basically how they've progressed over church history, like how they've developed. And it's so fascinating to me um, because the author will basically is running from a you know conservative uh, evangelical type of point of view, but basically each time you come upon like a new heresy being invented or developed or put forth, there's always some underlying motivation. Like it's not just like, well, they read the Bible and this is where they landed. It's always like they wanted to appease the king or they wanted to, you know, do this or build this thing for them. And it's like, it's so funny because it's, it's often moral and theological are never separated. Like it's always like there's something that plays into each other um, where there's all these underlying motivations. And so it's not just a question of like, um, you know, are we going to sacrifice our theology in this way or our convictions in this way? There's always a moral aspect with it too um, and vice versa. I wonder if we can kind of think, kind of link what we were just talking about back to your pastoral encouragement at the end of like, um, you know, kind of the, the tendency or maybe the temptation for us to make some of these more compromises to maybe, um, to allow the ends to justify the means a little bit. What do you kind of see for our church, for our context, for maybe our city? What's kind of the, um, if, if you kind of have a 10,000 foot view of like, these are the wolves in sheep's clothing that it's going to be really easy for us to be swayed by, um, that you just want to kind of encourage our people to maybe look out for as we try to be faithful. Yeah, I think, I mean, sexuality is a big one, sure. right? Yeah. And so, um, because there's so many factors at play, like our questioning of historic Christian doctrines of sexuality are are not, like, we're not absent of our desires, right? And so I see this a lot with, you know, couples choosing to live together, which is a, a huge thing that's only going to continue to grow uh, outside of the context of marriage. And the arguments are always, well, I just, you know, the Bible doesn't express, expressly forbid it, and I don't see it in Scripture and all this kind of stuff. But there's always underlying desires there, um, right? I think about, um, 
you know, homosexuality, right? And and the complexity of that, but it's never just that, right? So often if someone sits down with me and they're like, hey, I'm questioning the, the biblical position that I've held of uh, homosexuality and if it's okay or not. And often it's because either their own struggle of desire or the struggle of desire of someone they're close to, a family member, a close friend. Um, and I, and on a human level, it's like that makes a lot of sense, right? And we and there's a, s- a sensitivity to like, oh, we are, um, we're complex humans with complex emotions and relationships, and so it's like, oh, it makes sense that you are asking these questions about the biblical doctrine of sexuality because of your love for your friend. Um, but it, it's going okay. How do we bl- how do we see the goodness of the theological position in application too, and not just like we're, I'm going to phone it in because I don't want to be unloving, right? Which is a, uh, in a lot of ways, just a cheap position, a not fully thought out position. That's really what I was thinking too. You gave that Tim Keller certain like example, which was really kind of, kind of funny, but also just from the apt. But I was talking to one of our friends at our church a few months ago, just about like uh, biblical sexuality and all that stuff, and I, I said almost the same thing, forgetting that it was from Tim Keller. But I was like, for me, if I'm with a peer, especially someone in my age bracket, like that end of millennial, early Gen Z kind of thing, um, I'm 27 for what it's worth, but. When I'm talking to people and it's like, gosh, I just don't know if I believe the Bible, if I really think God's real, if, if uh, you know, the Bible's just this book written by white men, whatever. Like, I, my first question is usually, oh, so who in your life is same-sex attracted? Who, what friend or family member do you know that is affected by same-sex attraction? Because to me, that's how common it is for people in my age bracket. And maybe for Tim Keller years ago or whatever, he gave that little example. It was just sexual promiscuity in general. But for me, it's like, uh, nine times out of ten for the people I know, they're questioning following Jesus because they are being, you know, they're wrestling with the compassion they feel for the people in their lives that don't align with a biblical sexual ethic. Um, so, that, yeah, that's the one I think about. It's just, And we're being, I mean, culture's kind of assaulting us with these the messages of, like, um, only God can judge me. Like, I see no sin here. Love is love. Like, and they sound really winsome, don't they? But at the end of the day, we've got to come back and say, well, the Bible says what it says. Are we going to be okay with that or not? And I know it's easier said than done. And of course, we want to then work out a framework of, well, how do we engage with people lovingly, compassionately that don't fall into that? But we can't, ju- like, I just see the temptation really often for us to throw out biblical ethics in general because of that specific issue. Yeah. I mean, and that, and then I think even that one comes down to, like, what do we believe about Scripture? Right, like, what do we believe about um, the inerrancy of Scripture, the validity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture? Because so many of our doctrinal positions come down to like, all right, do we believe the Bible? Right, and then when we say, do we believe the Bible? Then do we trust uh, the way that Christians have read the Bible for thousands of years? Do we trust uh, the way that people smarter than us are reading the Bible? Do we trust our own lack of perception? And I mean, part of this is like, man, no one. Uh, again, I'm on that church history chain. No one questioned the validity of scripture in Christian circles uh, in any type of way that caught any type of uh, like uh, following until the movement of postmodernism in the 1920s and 30s. That was this whole liter- literary movement of um, the meaning is not in the text or in the authorial intent. The meaning is with the reader. And that was really like the the first time within Christendom at large, and I mean Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, mainline denomination, like all across the board, they had different. Now they had different interpretations of some stuff, and they had different uh, arguments of like what's the ultimate authority? Is it the church? Is it the Bible? Like they had other things they wrestled with, but no one questioned the validity and inerrancy of Scripture in any way that caught 
actual movement or following until you have this whole literary movement based around uh, self-identified meaning based around how do I read the text? Well, that just doesn't make sense to me. Well, that just doesn't gel, like gel with my worldview. Uh, and really that is 110 years now. So it's like, it, this is a relatively new thing that even, you know, I think in, in God's providence, uh, I would argue there's a reason why even, you know, in the early 1920s, that's when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, hmm. right? Is it in a rise with like, yeah. here we go, we're questioning this. Now here's, you know, thousands of manuscripts yeah. that are going to give you further validity <laughs> to this stuff. Um and so I think like that is even part of it is is this um you know we we like to think I like to think that I am in a special time in history right. and I like to think <laughs> that I am a special place and I am a special unique thinker on some things special voice a special perspective Yeah and I have unique yeah. thoughts that no one in the world definitely. has ever thought about before um and Yeah that's definitely just you Tim Yeah no sure. just me um <laughs> and I think it's important to go back to like Man, what uh, what is what are what is the traditions of our faith, and in all of these aspects? Uh, I mean, atonement theory is like that's a weeds one that you're not going to see as much in in the the fine tooth stuff. But it's like that's the same kind of thing, man. Like we're we're debating this stuff that we've been debated. We've done it's, this before. It's, it's been declared. <laughs> it's been said. Uh, you before. can tell our hobby horse over the past two uh, <laughs> two podcasts that we've done that we're on right now. But uh, I think just going back to like um, remembering, it's never just one or the other. It's never moral or theological. Uh, we have to question our questioning. We have to doubt our doubts, right? We have to deconstruct our deconstruction. And, and I think it, it comes back to like, all right, I'm asking these larger questions, which are not bad to ask, right? Like so much of fundamentalism in the late 1900s was like, don't, don't question, ask. don't yeah. ask. Like that was youth group culture, right? right. Like, don't ask these hard questions. Ask the hard questions, but doubt your doubts and say, okay, do I have a problem? Uh, I'll give you another one with the human sexuality, the problem of evil. So often people's question is, I just don't know if I can believe in a God who lets this bad stuff happen. I, re I read the Bible and they, they talk about it like it's an Old Testament kind of out there evil. But so often it's because of the pain and suffering of our own lives that make us go, how do I, how do I trust a God who right. lets this happen? Not to me. in a generic sense, but in a yeah. me personal sense. Right. And it's like, yeah, that, that's a very uh, valid human question to ask. But we have to doubt our doubts and we have to go, okay, what are the underlying motivations? What am I trying to get out under from that is easier for me to swallow, not to just own my my rebellion against God or life lived independently from God, but what almost becomes easier to swallow if I just say I don't believe that right. way anymore. Yeah, for sure. And even in all those things, like in the doubt and the in the temptation and the in the pressure from from culture to to be swayed we as people that follow Jesus look to the faithfulness of Jesus in the wilderness and ultimately his faithfulness to die on the cross. And we are invited to take on his faithfulness on our behalf and be faithful as he is faithful. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We will catch you next Sunday at the gathering and see you next week on the podcast. Thanks. <laughs>